is really a kind of, if the Lord will forgive me for terming it this way, an appendage to Jonah. Because the book of Jonah pronounced judgment on Nineveh and it was uh, said in abate, uh, abatement and now all of a sudden uh, God says, okay, <laughs> your time has come. And it's about a hundred years later, roughly, that uh, uh, Nahum pronounces this judgment as far as we can ascertain. It's a little bit difficult to determine exactly the time element. So, uh, obviously the message is, is very simple. It is Nineveh is going to get it. And, and while he first of all addresses uh, uh, the judgment on Nineveh, he talks about uh, the delay and uh, Nineveh's heaping up wrath to the day of wrath and finally, of course, why he's doing it. All of her sin enumerates her sins. So what I've tried to do is just pick out two or three things that I felt might allow me to elaborate a little bit. And so let's pray together and, and, and then we'll pursue this. Our Father, again, we thank you for your word and we want to hear and understand. And so grant to us that quickening and make this a valuable and useful time. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, just a couple of verses allow me to read and then I'll pursue these notes that I put before you. Uh, verse 2. Uh, God is, a, is jealous and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and in great power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm and the clouds and the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry and dries up all the rivers. Verse 5, the mountains quake before him and the hills melt. The earth is burned at his presence, yea, the world and all that's in it. Now, all of, the, all of this, of course, to emphasize uh, the wrath of God. Verse 6, who can stand before his indignation? who can abide in the fierceness of his anger. Anger, his fury, is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down uh, before him. Now verse 7 is a beautiful verse because it suggests that even in Nineveh, God had a remnant. And remember that God always reserves to himself a remnant. And in the midst of national judgments, while judgment may fall on a nation or on a city, uh, the remnant of God's people that's in it experience the same discomforts that uh, the whole city is experiencing. As we've pointed out before, when God carried uh, uh, Judah away into captivity to Babylon, well, the, the, the faithful Hebrews like uh, Hananiah, Mishael, Nazariah, and Daniel, all these guys were carried away with them. And so verse 7 points to the fact that there were some in Nineveh who maintained a faithful relationship with the Lord uh, out of that uh, revival that came in the days of Jonah. So the Lord is good and a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those that trust in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make an utter end of the place, and darkness shall pursue uh, his enemies. Now, a couple of these verses we cited when we were uh, looking at Micah, like verse 11, for example, the wicked counselor that comes out of him. But we're going to look at judgment falling. Look at verse 12. Thus saith the Lord, though they be quiet and likewise many, 
yet thus they shall be cut down. When he shall pass through, though I have afflicted thee, I will afflict thee uh, no more. Now look at uh, uh, your notes for a moment, please. Verses 3 and 9 both emphasize the fact that God is going to bring an utter end. Now what I've wanted to do with this, and I realize I've had to go out of the book to do it, but the principle is there, is what I've oft uh, made reference to in different lessons that the wicked fill up their cup of iniquity. And this delay of judgment that came on Nineveh uh, after they turned away from the Lord really looks at even a second generation uh, that has rejected the truth of God. And somebody's pointed out that what one generation embraces, the next generation uh, will reject. I think it was Bill Gothard, one of those guys that said that, and certainly that proves so often uh, to be the case. Uh, so Romans chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, And despisest thou the riches of his goodness, uh, goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that it's the goodness of God that leads thee to repentance. But after thy hardness and impenitent heart, treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Now there's the idea of heaping up wrath to the day of wrath, or filling your cup of iniquity. In other words, 1 Thessalonians 2.16, forbidding uh, to speak with the Gentiles and in the context he's talking about uh, the Jews in their attitude toward the gospel. Forbidding to speak to the Gentiles that they might uh, be saved to fill up their sins always. Uh, for the wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. And now there are several verses that use this expression of the cup. Uh, and a cup in the scripture is fellowship. Uh, that's, its, that's its key use. And it's interesting that uh, what they're looking at is God looks at the cup of judgment. He's talking about bringing them into fellowship with judgment. Uh, so Ezekiel 23 then. Verse 32. Thus saith the Lord God, Thou shalt drink of thy sister's cup deep and large. He's talking about Judah uh, drinking of Samaria's uh, judgment. Samaria, you remember, already carried away uh, by the Assyrians. Uh, Judah is in her first carrying away and God is telling her that because you have not repented, you're going to be utterly destroyed. And so he says, you'll drink of your sister's cup deep and large. That was that cup of judgment. They came into fellowship with judgment, in other words. Somebody said one time, fellowship is two fellows in the same ship. And so when the judgment fell, they were in the ship with them. Uh, you shall be laughed to scorn and had in derision because the idea is the cup contains much, contains much judgment, much wrath in other words. Now obviously the cup has a positive side as well and we'll look at that in a minute uh, just to balance that out. Now one of the interesting things about this book is that uh, Assyria was in fact an, an instrument of God's judgment. And I'd like you to, for you to look at these verses in Isaiah chapter 10. <coughs> because of the iniquity of the northern kingdom of Israel, and their iniquity was great, God in fact raised up the Assyrians to execute his judgment. He uses one nation to execute judgment on another nation. And then he does that nation in. <laughs> so verse 5 of Isaiah 10. O Assyrian, the rod of my anger, the staff in whose hand is my indignation. 
In other words, God said, I'm giving you the staff of indignation and I want you to execute it upon my people. He doesn't know that. We'll see that in a minute, but that's God's command. I will send him against an hypocritical nation, against the people of my wrath. I will command him to take a spoil, to take a prey, to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Howbeit he meaneth not so, neither doth his heart think so. But it's in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. In other words, I'm sending him. He's not aware I'm sending him. He thinks he's doing this on his own. But the fact of the matter is I've commissioned him to do this. Here is, of course, a good example of the angelic host that works behind every nation, as Daniel's prophecy uh, notes very carefully. Uh, let me skip down to uh, verse 10, if I may. As my hand has founded the kingdoms of the idols, and whose carved images did excel them of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not, as I have done unto Samaria and her idols, so also do to Jerusalem and her idols. Wherefore it shall come to pass, and here's the interesting verse, when the Lord has performed his work upon Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, I will punish the fruit of the stout heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his high looks, for he says, by the strength of my hand I have done this, and by my wisdom, for I am prudent, and so forth. So the king of Assyria says, well, look how mighty I am. And God says, <laughs> yeah, I'm giving you the commission to do this or you would not be successful. And therefore God brought down his high looks uh, by, of course, the instrument of uh, the Babylonians. The, to follow this principle of God's rod and judgment, Isaiah 51 and 17, Awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, which has drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury, Thou hast drunken the dregs of the cup of trembling and wrung them out. For in the hand of the Lord, Psalm 75 and 8, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red, and it is full of mixture, and he pours out of the same. But the dregs thereof, all the wicked of the earth, shall wring them out and drink them. So you get this idea of God handing this cup of judgment uh, to whatever nation he wants to use to judge his people, and then ultimately... Uh, pours that cup out uh, on them. The beauty of this is, and we get this again in, in the, the encouraging words uh, to his people in uh, uh, verse 7, that he knows those that are his, those that trust in him. The beauty of this obviously is Matthew 26, 39. And he went a little farther and fell on his face, and Jesus prayed saying, O Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, Nevertheless, not as I will, but it was you will. Now here was the cup of wrath that was about to be poured out upon the sun. Now I want to elaborate on that a little bit. We usually look at that in terms of uh, his sufferings at the cross. And I would not eliminate that from it. But I want to go beyond that a little bit. When the Lord Jesus was praying this prayer in the garden, he had already acknowledged the fact that he was going to have to go to the cross, had he not. And that was made plain to the disciples. So when he goes into the garden and he prays this three times, let this cup pass from me. And if we keep in mind that the cup is fellowship, I want to suggest something beyond that. That the Lord Jesus was in fact about to go into fellowship with Satan. There are two aspects of the cross. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. 
And when Jesus died, from the third hour to the sixth hour, there was light, you'll remember, and the father was beholding the sacrifice of his son, and he was well pleased. But from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, it went dark. And it was at that point, you'll remember, that the son cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It was at that point that the uh, Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world became the, anyone? Hmm? Serpent on the pole. That's when he became the serpent on the pole. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, John chapter 3, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And I want therefore to suggest to you that when that happened, and Jesus who knew no sin was made sin for us, that in order to bring us to where he is, he had to go where we were. And where were we? We were under bondage to Satan. And so I want to suggest to you that the cup that he saw in that garden was a communion with Satan. And that's what his heart was shying from. And that's how he had to say to the Father, Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. For in order to deliver us, it was necessary that he not only become sin for us, but that he faced the same kind of relationship. I, I, you know, I'm lacking for words here, I confess. But, uh, uh, yes, and that was the point. Yes, that was the point at which death came into Godhead. And we think of death again as annihilation or cessation of evil. Death is separation. Uh, as the body without the spirit is dead, James says, you'll remember. Uh, so faith without uh, uh, works is dead. So uh, what happened was the son and the father were, uh, there came a breach of fellowship between them. And literally death came into Godhead. And that was a staggering thing. But then when Jesus said it is finished, that was the finish of it. He had faced that experience when that darkness came. Uh, let me elaborate on this just a little bit more if I may. The sacrifices in the Old Testament, the Levitical uh, offerings, for example, are, are beautifully illustrative of this. In the first chapter, first through the fifth chapter of Leviticus, you have these five uh, offerings. And the meal offering is prepared in an interesting way. There were three ways to do it. One way uh, was that it was to be uh, 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 baked on a griddle and you can see the whole thing you know top bottom if you want you can see the whole thing and I would suggest to you there he looks because meal offerings address the humanity of Christ meal always addresses humanity in the scripture and you could see the sufferings of Christ physically they were evident to us they were evident to those that are about what he was going through the second way it was prepared, prepared was it was fried in a pan now that was only partially visible and I would suggest then the soulish sufferings of Christ were partially visible. For example, he says to his mother, uh, uh, behold your son, and to John, behold your mother. Uh, you could feel, uh, you could see in that his personal feelings that were coming out. But then you come to the third offering of the meal and it was baked in an oven. We didn't see any of that. And all of that relates, I am convinced, to his sufferings in the spirit and what we'll never be able to understand, fortunately, because he took that cup uh, in our behalf. And so the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus is more than just uh, God saying, I'm forgiven your sins because my son died. It's what the son had to go through in order to obtain that. And because as Hebrews would say, he cried out to the Father with strong crying and tears and was heard in that he feared. What a, what a remarkable statement. 
indeed. And so those two aspects of the cross I think sometimes get lost. And uh, when we think of Jesus uh, praying as he was in that garden, uh, he never had a thought about the rejecting the cross or questioning the cross. But when he came to that point, he saw something in that cup that he had never seen before. And remember <coughs> that Jesus only knew what the Father showed him. Whatsoever things the Father says, I say. Whatsoever things the Father do, does, I do. Yes, ma'am, Jen. When he said, when he said, it's his finished. Yes. <coughs> yes. When he said it is finished, he had gone through that experience. Yes. In that, in that dark time, that fellowship with Satan, yes. When that dark time from the time the sun went black and the time... Uh, the son cried out, Why hast thou forsaken me? Then we have this, uh, <laughs> what do I say? You know, we have this experience that the son went through with Satan until such time as he could cry, It is finished. And he was successful. Uh, and, and again, it happened in the spirit world. And so it was in the oven in the scripture that tells us what that experience was for him? Well, we could come close to it perhaps in Psalm 88. Psalm 88 gives no note of victory whatsoever. Uh, it, it is the exception in all of the Psalms of no note of victory. And I pass, quoted the passage from Hebrews a moment ago, in strong crying and tears he was heard and he feared. It's my belief that Psalm 88 reflects those strong crying and tears. Uh, what he experienced in that time. And uh, he, you'll remember the scripture says that he, that he took from Satan the keys of death and of hell. And that's when he did it. Uh, the resurrection is the, guarantee, is the evidence of that and the guarantee of that. Now, there are those who believe that when Jesus died and, and uh, he was buried and his spirit went into Hades, that he went into suffering in hell. No, 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 no. And they say that to say, well, if, if he didn't go into suffering in hell, how can he deliver us? Well, suffering in hell is not deliverance. That's punishment. That's penal. Uh, that isn't remedial. Only the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, deals with sin. When he went into the heart of the earth, he went into the heart of the earth to proclaim deliverance to the captives because he had obtained that deliverance already on the cross. The captives being the... The Old Testament saints that were in paradise, yes. Yes, thank you for asking that. That's right. And he went into paradise, and, and in effect, he said, you were right, and you're going to come with me. And when he ascended, uh, at the end of that 40 days and 40 nights, he took paradise with him. And, and with that also, he looks over this great gulf, and he says to those in torment, you were wrong. And he slammed the door on them. So that was the end of that for them. And again... I know we've cited this before, but to me the great illustration of that is the life of Joseph. And there's nobody in the Old Testament that so depicts the life of Christ as does Joseph, who was the beloved son of his father, sent with a message from his father to his brethren, rejected by his brethren, put in the pit, brought out of the pit, uh, 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 falsely accused by the harlot woman, religion of the day, uh, put into prison. Uh, Peter said that Jesus, when he was in the grave, uh, uh, went into the heart of the earth, he preached to the spirits in prison. You remember that? There's where Joseph is. He's preaching to the spirits in prison. And what does he say? He says to the butler, you're going to be restored to your place. He's the guy that put the cup of wine in the hands of the king. He says to the baker, 
you're going to be hanged. And that's exactly what Jesus did in the heart of the earth. He, he said to, to uh, uh, the uh, uh, righteous in, in uh, paradise, uh, you're redeemed. You're coming to me. You're going to get delivered out of this place. But he said to those in torment, it's terminal. So there's a uh, there there's so many grand things that that uh, are in uh, that dark area of what Christ did in our behalf that we never we don't see and we never will experience. Thanks be unto God for that. Now because he did that, and I have to add this, because he did that, now we have the fellowship of the cup of blessing in him very different cup whereas the one was full of wrath this one is full of blessing where one was brought into common union that's what communion is isn't it one was brought into common union with God's wrath and judgment we're brought into common union with his blessing and his righteousness so these are familiar verses I just cited a couple for reference but you could go through a multitude of them in the whole of, of uh, the word 1 Corinthians 10, 16, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion, there again, the common union uh, in the blood of Christ. Psalm 23, of course, you prepare a table for more before me in the presence of my enemies, and you anoint my head with oil, and my cup runneth over. One the Old Testament Hebrew translator tr rendered that, my cup is exhilarated. I thought that was interesting. <laughs> And I heard old Scotman one time preach it, and he said, uh, he said, you ask me how I am, he said, I'm drinking out of my saucer. Oh. Well, you get the idea? The cup was running over. I thought that was real cute. Yeah. Drinking out of my saucer. Uh, Psalm 116, I, and the previous verse in this is, what shall I render unto the Lord for all of his benefits toward me? And we start thinking up all these things we ought to do, you know. He says, I will take the cup of salvation and I will call upon the name of the Lord. Communion is the highest priority in God's desire for any of his kids. Now, chapter 2 of Nahum, let me read these verses. He that dashes in pieces is come up before thy face. Now, this is the invader that's going to destroy Nineveh and Assyria. He that dashes in pieces has come up before the face. Keep the fortress, watch the way, make your loins strong. Fortify thy power mightily, for the Lord hath turned away the excellency of Jacob as the excellency of Israel. The emptiers have emptied them out and marred their vine branches. The shield of his mighty men is made red. The valiant men are in scarlet. The chariot shall be with flaming torches in the day of his preparation and the fir trees shall terribly shake. The chariots shall rage in the streets and shall jostle one against another in the broad ways. They shall seem like torches. They shall run like lightnings. I remember that there was one uh, brother uh, preaching on the end times that drew on these two verses and made them a description of a tank battle. Uh, I would not say that that would not uh, be the case, but he's really talking about the Babylonians here, of course. <clears throat> uh, let's skip on down uh, to verse 13 behold I am against thee saith the Lord of hosts and that's an that's a wow. awesome statement 
Shows up several places in the Old Testament. When God says he's against you, you're in trouble. Behold, I'm against thee, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will burn her chariots in the smoke, and the sword shall devour thy young lions, and I will cut off thy prey from the earth, and the voice of thy messenger shall be no more heard. And there is Nineveh now. It's a pile of dust. Now, so let's say this. Verse two, or chapter 2, verse 1 again. He that dashes in pieces. Uh, that can be rendered the hammer. Uh, the hammer dashes in pieces. Or the hammer uh, is come to dash in pieces. And uh, uh, some of you will remember your history. Charles Martel was Charles the Hammer. And he was the guy that delivered Europe from the Muslims, you remember, and drove them back across the Pyrenees Mountains. And it's just interesting to me that this expression shows up here in the Hebrew. But this is a reference to the Babylonians, uh, who, by the way, reference verse 3, their shield mighty is red. They liked red. They wore red. They uh, painted stuff red. I don't know. There may have been behind that a very practical reason, because the British Navy, for example, for uh, the in the years of the what do you call it wood riggers anyway they would paint the decks of their boats red the uh, war vessels they would paint them red so that when the cannon came through and took somebody's leg off and blood is running all over the the uh, deck it's not such a shock to the men and so they painted all the decks red so that the blood would not stand out so prominently in the midst of a battle and I don't know Maybe the Babylonians had the same idea. If the guy's wearing red, you won't see the blood all over him. I don't know. Anyhow, they did. <laughs> well, maybe so. <laughs> they shouldn't have worn those white stripes, though, because they were perfect targets. <laughs> oh, man. Of course, uh, Americans did that, too. It was only blue instead of red. <laughs> no. No, they really didn't. <laughs> yeah. Hide behind a rock wall. They were, I believe they were described as barbarians. <laughs> yes. Well, all right, anyhow. Here, so here is the hammer, Babylon, that's uh, risen to destroy by the hand of the Lord, risen to destroy uh, Assyria. Now, again, remember uh, Daniel chapter 10 when uh, Gabriel comes to bring the answer to Daniel's prayer. And Daniel, the scripture says, set his face to seek his God for 21 days and, and uh, for three full weeks. And Gabriel came and said, from the first day you set your face to seek your God, I am come for thy words. But the prince of Persia withstood me. Now he's not talking about the king, he's talking about the prince of Persia, the angel. And he said, when I am gone, the prince of Grecia will come. Now in that simple statement, he noted what was later prophesied in Daniel and what we know from history that Alexander the Great just invaded Persia and destroyed it and, and uh, then after Greece then of course came uh, Rome. So we have this kind of a transfer of power in God's economy as one raise, uh, nation is raised up to uh, chasten and destroy another. So here is Babylon the hammer that's coming against uh, the Assyrians. Now there is an interesting verse. Now this is kind of a throw in here, but I wanted to do this. I want you to look at uh, Ezekiel 29 with me. Uh, I am fascinated uh, with the justice of God in, so, in every area. And uh, here he raises up Babylon 
to destroy the Assyrians. And then he sends them down to Tyre to destroy Tyre and that whole kingdom of Phoenicia because of their iniquity. But allow me to give a little background here before I read this text. In verses 18 and 19, we're going to be after. <coughs> but when uh, uh, the Babylonians came against Tyre, you remember uh, they were situated on the seacoast, but off the coast there was an island. And while populated, it was not the city. And when the uh, uh, Babylonians set siege against Tyre, they just loaded everything in their boats and sailed out to the island. And they emptied the city of all of its loot. You know, anything of a value, they took with them. And uh, so the Babylonians, when they finally got into the city, there wasn't anything left, you know. Well, these people maintained these uh, uh, invasions by whatever they took from the cities or the fields, the wheat and so forth. Wasn't anything to take. And so he went on to Egypt and invaded Egypt. And that's interesting, too, because... Uh, uh, the remnant of Judah had fled to Egypt to get away from the Babylonians. <laughs> you remember, God told Jeremiah, tell him, he said, don't go to Egypt. They went, yeah, we're going to flee. God wants us to go to Egypt. He said, you go inquire of the Lord. Okay, I'll inquire of the Lord, but you're not going to do what he says anyway. And so Jeremiah inquired of the Lord. Ten days later, came back and said, don't go to Egypt. Stay here. I'll prosper you. No, God hadn't spoken by you. We're going to Egypt. So they went to Egypt, and that was the next invasion that Nebuchadnezzar made. How'd I get on that? Oh, yes. Okay. So, he didn't get anything from Tyre. So, verse 18, chapter 29. Son of man, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, caused his army to serve a great service against Tyre. Every head was made bald, every shoulder was rubbed raw, yet had he no wages for his army, for Tyre, for the service that he served against it. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will give the land of Egypt unto Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall take her multitude and her spoil and take her prey and it shall be wages for his army. Isn't that remarkable? <laughs> God said, yeah, he said, I'm going to pay you. You worked for me, so I'm going to pay you. God is a debtor to no man. Now, I just listed in your notes there for whatever value it may be, uh, the nations... Uh, that were used by the Lord to chasten Israel and which came under judgment ultimately themselves because of their own iniquity. Uh, there are seven of these and when I address Rome's offspring of course I'm making reference to the kingdom of the Antichrist and all of these kingdoms are referred to in Revelation chapter 17 uh, when God says that the woman sets on seven mountains and these are those seven mountains on which the woman. Mountains in the prophetic word are kingdoms. It's interesting, of course, that the city of Rome, yes, is built on seven mountains. And you can't avoid that uh, uh, very interesting reference to her. So, <coughs> I can <coughs> back you up to 115. Here's that passage uh, that God always places in the... Uh, ministry of the prophets, that anticipation of the ultimate deliverance of the coming of Messiah, and it's in verse 15, behold upon the mountains the feet of him that brings good tidings and publishes peace. Judah, keep your solemn feasts, perform your vows,
For the wicked shall no more pass through thee, he shall be utterly cut off. There's a day coming when there will be an announcement, God says, upon the mountains of peace. Now, the first reference to this, of course, is the destruction of Assyria. You see the same reference in Isaiah 52 with regard to the destruction of Babylon. But the Apostle Paul draws on those passages or that same statement to address the gospel of Christ. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him that brings the gospel of good things. Anyone have any comments or questions? Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Do you think this, it's any validation in the scripture that there might be persons after the rapture that will not be martyred but that will be the Lord's? Redeemed? Well, I think so. I think it would be very difficult to say not. Um, they will, however, experience a translation. When uh, 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 the uh, two witnesses begin their... Uh, let's look at the passage, all right? He, uh, Revelation 11. Now, if you don't get out early, it's Pat's fault at this point. <laughs> this is a loaded question. Uh, the first part of the uh, chapter, verses 1 and 2, he's measuring the temple area. Whenever God measures something, it's so to build, in order to build something. The temple's going to be rebuilt. Then in verse 3, you have the ministry of the two witnesses, which are without question Moses and, in my mind, Moses and Elijah, yes. Um, and of course, all their ministries testify to that. Um, there, verse 8, their dead bodies lie in the street of the great city which spiritually is called Sodom. That term is applied to Jerusalem in Isaiah chapter 1 uh, indicating the degree of her uh, apostasy. Okay, come over then with uh, verse 11. Uh, God uh, allows power given to the uh, beast to destroy them, these two witnesses, to kill them. They lie in the streets for three days. A hellish Christmas is, goes on at that time. They're rejoicing over their death. Verse 11. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God enters into them, and they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them who saw it. That's one of those grand understatements, I think. You can just picture this scene, and the whole world, you know, via satellite is watching these two dead guys that they'd been trying to kill and couldn't finally they were able to and all of a sudden there they stand up verse 12 and they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them come up here and they ascended up into heaven in a cloud and their enemies beheld them that cloud I would suggest to you again not an atmospheric condition it's a reference to all of the tribulation saints that are being translated into the heavens some of them have been martyred some of them without doubt not now, the greater multitude probably have been martyred, but uh, some of them not. And they're uh, caught up with these uh, two witnesses into the heavens. Um, well, okay. Not teaching Revelation. <laughs> Anything else? All right. Father, we're grateful for all your goodness and your faithfulness. And we do thank you, Father, for the anticipation, the hope that's set before us. We thank you for
the good news that you proclaimed. You're faithful in your judgments. You're righteous in your judgments, our Father. And we simply say, even so come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Bless you all.